Now, in Las Vegas, Nevada, a week ago tonight, as everyone in here knows, a lone gunman, he caused absolute chaos. Isn't that right? Stephen Paddock, a 64-year-old accountant, I think he was, he opened fire uh, on a group of unsuspecting music lovers, killing, uh, is it 59, and injuring over 500 others. Now, this horrific event seems to be just the latest in a long, long line of horrendous news events that you and I have witnessed and heard about in recent times. Isn't that right? From bombings in Manchester, to night attacks in Westminster, to terror events in Parsons Green. Are you not with me when I say it seems as though we are living through a very dark time in human history? Now you see all of this, and especially the events in Nevada, it has begun to uh, raise questions for the society in which we live. And I'm sure you know that's true from the people in your life and the people you work with, people you socialize with, even on the media. We hear the same thing a lot, don't we? People are asking, how can anyone do that? Bombing in Manchester, Las Vegas. How can anyone do this? I mean, why could such a thing like this happen? How can man be so disgustingly wicked to his fellow man? Well, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at First Samuel chapter 13. I think a chapter that is written in a very deliberate way to remind us of lessons about humanity. Like to remind you about the very... The very heart of man. Lessons about human nature. And what I think will happen tonight is that as we go through 1 Samuel 13, we are going to be confronted with the answer. The answer as to why events like Las Vegas, why these things happen, why terror occurs. And the first thing that we need to note from this portion of Scripture is the disaster of disobedience. The disaster of disobedience. Now, uh, hopefully you remember, if you've been here for the sermon series, or if you know First Samuel reasonably well, you remember the background. Do you? That Nahash, the Ammonite, had threatened the people of Israel. And what do they do? Do they trust in God? No, not a bit of it. They call out for a king, like all the other nations have. Then what happens? Then Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, he is installed as king. And if you were here last week, do you remember, can we cast our minds back, what happened last week? That the keys of power are transferred from Samuel the judge to Saul. So what's the background? Saul is king. Saul has been made king. Now what happens here in front of us? Well, yes, I know, as I'm sure a lot of you know, that there's a textual difficulty at the very beginning, First Samuel chapter 13, in some of the original, sort of, or the early manuscripts, the numbers, you know, the years in verse 1, they were actually missed out. Okay, and, and yeah, we can, if you want, like we could talk about this, this textual difficulty, we could talk about it for hours. Uh, tonight, I don't want to, to be honest with you. Instead, what I think we need to do is we need to note the initial victory that is won. Now, have a look at it in verse 2. Do you see what happens? Remember what I've said. Saul's king. Saul's king. So what does he do? He sends most of his troops home. 
But what he does is he keeps three garrisons of his troops, three groups of soldiers back. Now, he keeps two uh, of these groups, these garrisons of soldiers for himself, Bethel. So he's got two. What does he do with the other one? He gives it to Jonathan. We know who Jonathan is, don't we? we? So he gives it to his son. His son has got a group of troops. What does Jonathan do? Jonathan strikes out. Okay, so he attacks and he defeats a garrison of the Philistines at a place called Geba. Now you might have noticed, when I read this out, you might have noticed that Saul takes credit for this. Did you notice that? Like Jonathan wins the victory, but it's Saul who blows the trumpet. He takes all the glory. And a lot of the commentators and a lot of ministers make a big deal of this. I'm not sure it's all that significant. I mean, if you think about it, it seems pretty legitimate. Saul's king. He's the one who's masterminded the military positions. After all, I think it's legitimate. Actually, I don't think we're supposed to focus on that. I think you and I are supposed to appreciate the Philistine response to this victory. And don't you love the language? Look at verse 4. The language appeals to me. Look at it. We are told Israel becomes a stench. Becomes a stench. Do you see what's happened? This victory has just awoken. The beast, the Philistines, they they muster their troops. Did you get your head around some of the numbers? 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, so many troops. How do the people of God respond? Do you know how they respond? They respond like the mice of St. Botoff's. Because <laughs> not to freak you out too much, very often I'll come in here on a Sunday night and I'll be the first one in and I'll maybe stick on a light and there'll be a little bit of scurrying activity going on in the building. And here, that's what happens, isn't it? The people of God, they see the thousands of Philistine troops. And what do they do? They panic. They scarper. You see, they hide, hide in cisterns, hide in holes. They run, they run, they run for the hills. See all of that? All of that is setting the scene for the response of the king. King Saul, but for you to get this, you're going to have to work with me. Will you do this? Will you turn back one page? Turn back to chapter 10, verse 8. I think it's just one page, is it? Chapter 10, verse 8. Give you a moment. Now, in chapter 10, if if you can remember, Saul's learning about what his calling to kingship is all about. Now, Remember Samuel is, Samuel is the official spokesman of God. So who's actually speaking to Saul in verse 8? God Almighty is speaking to Saul. And what does he say? Have a look at verse 8. What does he tell Saul to do? He tells him to go to Gilgal. Samuel there is going to offer some burnt offerings. Now this is the crucial, this is the crucial bit. If you get this, you get Samuel 13. If you miss this little bit, you're not going to get Samuel 13, okay? Here's the thing. How long does God command Saul to wait in Gilgal? What's the answer? Boys and girls, you see it? Or boys rather? No girls. No girls. How long? Seven days. Said God, you got it? God commands, commands Saul to wait for Samuel seven days. Now, here's the thing. Flick back to chapter 13. And conveniently, it's verse 8. So go back to chapter 13, verse 8. What do you see? You see that Saul begins to obey. 
doesn't he? Like he goes to Gilgal, and what do you read there in front of you? It says he waited seven days. But, ha actually what that means is he waits into the seventh day. Like you said, he's waited nearly seven days. And so now do you begin to sense the tension of the text? The Philistines are looming. And Saul's men are scattering. And the text is saying to you, what's Saul going to do? Like, what is he going to do? Is he going to wait seven days? Is he going to wait for Samuel? Is he going to be obedient to God's word? Or is he going to take things into his own hands? And then look at verse 9. What happens? He disobeys. Like he doesn't wait for Samuel. Instead, he just goes on himself and he offers these burnt offerings. Do you see? He disobeys God's word. Now, let me just pause for a second. Let me, let, let me speak to you here. What, what do you think of this? Like, at the moment, are you thinking, do you know, it doesn't seem that, not seem that bad. Like, he's, he's waited mostly. He's gone to Gilgal. He's off. He's made burnt offerings. To, it doesn't seem that bad. Is that what you're thinking? You see the big picture? I mean, what is, this is the beginning of monarchy in Israel. And who's this guy? This is the king, God's chosen king. This is the guy who represents the people. This is so important, friends. The people, the, the, the one who represents the people before God. The one through whom God is going to deal with the people. And what do we see time and time again? Remember in Deuteronomy 17, what was it? I've read it so many times in the sermon series. Remember what it was? God's demand that his king, the king in Israel, be obedient. That the king must be subservient to God's word. So do you see what this is in 1 Samuel 13? This is... An almighty test. This is the test of Saul's reign. When the chips are down, when the pressure is on, when the enemy is there, what sort of reign is he going to have? Is he going to lead the people in righteousness? Or is he just going to be a king like all the other nations have? And what do we see? He disobeys God. And listen, it has disastrous consequences for the people he represents. Now, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? I suppose, don't you agree that we could talk about this for your life and my life? The fact that when the pressure is on, like it was for Saul, when the heat is on for your life and the stress is on, that what does God want from you and from me? What does he want? He wants our obedience as his people. He wants our love. We could talk about that. But do you know what I long for you to see? The bigger picture I long for you to see that what the author is doing here is drawing a very, very deliberate parallel to somewhere else in the Bible. And I wonder if you noticed it when we had the readings earlier on, that there's a parallel being drawn between 1 Samuel 13 and somewhere else in the Bible. Where else in the Bible? What did Adrian read earlier on? There's a parallel between this stuff here and Genesis chapter 3. Do you see that now? Now think about what happened in Genesis chapter 3. God's chosen king, Adam. The one that is going to represent the people before God. The one through whom God is going to deal with the people. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? He's put to the test. Isn't he? And, And what happens? The enemy looms large. Isn't that not as numerous as the sand? 
but slithering along the sand. He comes. There's pressure on Adam, pressure on this king. And what is the taste, the nature of the taste? Will Adam obey God's word or not? Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. And what happens? Like Saul, what does Adam do? He... What does he do? He disobeys that there to God's representative, the king of creation, he fails, he disobeys God. And what's the consequence? Dire consequences for all of the people that that first king represented. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the parallel? Do you see the point? If you tonight as a Christian are going to have any hope of understanding Las Vegas. Any hope at all of understanding the terror attacks in London. What must you do? You must look back. You must look to the disobedience of your first king. If we as a church are going to understand Parsons Green, Manchester, we look to Eden and we look to the fall of man. So we see here a disaster of disobedience. Second thing that we see here though is the consequences of disobedience. Hopefully friends, you see what we're dealing with here. <coughs> Excuse me. So representatives of the people's sins, dire consequences. In this second point though, I want to ask, I want us to look at what those consequences were. In 1 Samuel, he sinned and he's disobeyed God. What are the consequences of this? And what does that tell you about human nature and the situation of the world today? What we'll do is we'll look at a few of these major repercussions of Saul's sin. Each of them begins with D, boys. Okay? You've got to get them. There's not many, but they all begin with D. So what do we see? First of all, we see here that as a consequence of his sin, the king is dethroned. Would you look with me to verse 14? Verse 14. We have Samuel declare with the authority of God these words. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So do you see the idea, friends? That because of his disobedience, because he does not wait the seven days, that Saul, to be blunt, is being booted out of office... But not just that, there's consequences for his seed, for his offspring, for his lineage, right? They're all going to be affected as well. So the king is dethroned, right? Second one, we see that God departs. Now there's just a little phrase here. And it's a tiny little phrase in verse 15. And I honestly think it could very easily pass us by. Would you have a look at it? Verse 15. Doesn't seem like anything. Look at it. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. I read that, honestly. Sermon preparation, I read that, and I just read it as, and Samuel got up and went away. I didn't think anything of it for a while. But hang on a second. Do you see the implications of that? Who's Samuel? Samuel's a prophet of God. Like Samuel is the bearer. He is the bringer of God's word. And what have you been told there? You've been told that he leaves now. Do you understand that? He departs. He leaves Saul. He leaves Gilgal. He leaves people. Do you see what I'm saying to you? As a result of Saul's sin, 
There is now a separation with God. There is this chasm. There is this silence that's been created between God and his people. And then the third, the last of these days, we see that the people are disarmed. Again, I would ask you to work with me and look at verse 19. And again, sermon, sermon preparation of looking at this, verse 19, and I was thinking, where on earth is this going? You see it? Because there's all this talk about war and disobedience. And then suddenly, now there was no blacksmith to be found, scratching my head. Where on earth is this going? But I wonder, do you see the ramifications of this? Do you? That because of Saul's sin and the subsequent Philistine victory, what's happened? The enemy has taken control of the people. Isn't that what's happened? That the Philistines take all of the weapons of the people of God. They ban ammunition and they make all the people of Israel come to the enemy for everything they need. The people of God now have to come for machinery. They now have to come for tools. Do you, do you see? What's the word? How would you describe that? What's the word there? The people of God, because of Saul's sin, are enslaved that's what this is they're enslaved now to the Philistines now this evening I hope and pray that you see here what you are supposed to see in 1 Samuel 13 I hope you understand that the author is pointing you to the consequences and the repercussions of the fall but I'll tell you this I think there is a a real problem Like I think we, even as the church, even as the people of God, that we are underestimating and underappreciating the consequences, the results of Adam's first sin. Do you see that? Like in the way that we look at the world and the way that we interpret events, the way that you and I look at the media and interpret the things that we're seeing, isn't it true that we're prone to forgetting the sheer enormity, the scale of the loss of original righteousness. They were forgetting the scale, the implications of Adam's sin for humanity. And do you understand that that is what the author of Samuel is showing you here? And you think about it for a second. What has happened to humanity because of the fall? The king has been dethroned. That Adam, like Saul in the garden, was booted out of there. Booted out of Eden. Booted out of office. And not just that, there were implications for who? For his seed, for for you and for me and for all mankind, right? What was the other thing? That God has departed. That as Samuel here, he gets up from Gilgal. What's happened because of Adam's disobedience? That humanity experiences today this chasm, doesn't it? This separation. We experience, if we are outside of Christ, a silence, a lack of communication with God. And what was the third one? What was the third one? The people are spiritually disarmed. And isn't that true? That all those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are robbed of their spiritual weapons to fight the evil one? Isn't that? What has happened? What words? What has happened because of the fall? What do we see when we look around? The world is enslaved. The world is enslaved. 
And if we're going to understand Las Vegas, and if we're going to understand the events of terror in London and in this country, surely you see that we don't just look back. What do we see when we look back? We see that mankind is ruined. We are separated from God and man is broken. I wonder where you are tonight. I wonder if you look at Las Vegas and think that the chief problem there is gun control. Is that what you think? And do you think the problem of Las Vegas, the main problem, the real problem, do you think that that is political affiliation? Is that your interpretation of events? Do you think the main problem is mental illness? Friends, the main problem in Las Vegas is very simple. And the main problem is sin. And then we end with a third thing. So we see the disaster of disobedience. We see the consequence of disobedience. The last thing, the last thing, we see victory over disobedience. (laughs) Victory over disobedience. So you see the thesis this evening. If we're going to understand terror, if we're going to understand evil in this world, you and I have to look at that through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. But maybe you're sitting here tonight, maybe you're visiting LCPC, and you're thinking, wow, this is depressing. This is dark. Is there any good news whatsoever? What we have to appreciate, what we have to understand is, see the verses we're looking at tonight, they are preparatory. You get me? Chapters 13 to 15, they are paving the way for something else to happen. So to see that, look at verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. Samuel says, with the authority of God, he predicts Saul's falling away. Then he declares the coming of Saul's successor. He says, Saul, there's going to be a new guy in town. There's going to be a new king. Now, what is it in verse 14 that was so special about this new king? Do you see it? We're told, this famous phrase, this new king will be a man after God's own heart. Do you see what that means? What's, What's Samuel saying? He's saying, this king will be different to Saul. This king will not be a king just like all the other nations have. This king is going to be obedient to God's word. This king is going to care about God's glory. Now, here's my question for you, and we're we're ending with this. Who's Samuel talking about? Come on, you you know this. You know 1 Samuel. You know the Bible. Who's Samuel talking about? Who is a man after God's own heart? If you were brave enough, you would say... It's David. When you, you'd say it's David. It's David. It's the son of Jesse, a man chosen by God, a, a man <coughs> devoted to God. Yes, it's David. What do you know? What do I know? There's a bigger picture here. Who's the man after God's own heart? Where's this verse, verse pointing you to? It's beyond David, isn't it? It's beyond the son of Jesse. This verse is pointing you to God's ultimate king, to God's true king, the man of God's own heart, the Messiah of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where it really ends. What has God done in sending into this world his son? What has he done for you? Do you see what he's done? He's given you a king. A king. What sort of king does the church have? Do you remember Matthew chapter 4? We read it last year. Do you remember it? What happens? The Lord Jesus Christ, not in the garden, but in the wilderness. What happens? He is put to the test. The enemy looms large. 
There is pressure upon him, all of the strength in the world. And what is that test? Will he remain obedient to God's word? And what do we know, friends? What does the church declare? That unlike Adam and unlike Saul, our king remains obedient to the Lord God. But now we have a king unlike all the other nations. But we have a king who actually perfectly fulfills Deuteronomy chapter 17. Like a king through whom God deals with his church in righteousness and holiness. And that's beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? Because do you see what it means? Do you see what lies ahead of you, Christian brother and sister? Do you see it? One day, all of the misery of this earth will be gone. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Scripture tells you and I, one day, that king is going to fully inaugurate his rule. He is going to fully establish his dominion. And friends, what will that kingdom be like? It will be a kingdom without pain, without suffering, without death, and without any sort of man's inhumanity to man. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful thing that we have? One day, if you are in Christ Jesus tonight, one day, let me tell you your future. Are you ready? One day you and I are going to inhabit God's recreated earth. That's before you, before me. One day we are going to inhabit the city of God, all under the authority of the Prince of Peace. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it? Let me end with an obvious question. Will you be there? Will you? Will you be there? When the church sees its saviour, when we see with our own eyes the one who's risen from the tomb, when we see the gates of glory open, will you be there? Will you? Are you tonight trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Are you? Are you tonight trusting in God's obedient king. Let's breathe.